0: I found that I have some tools that can help even in that situation, and particularly among kids and working with parents who were more strident in their anti-vaccination
1: I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the December 18th episode of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. As a note to our regular listeners, this will be our final week of episodes in the year 2020. We will resume our regularly scheduled episodes on Wednesday, January 6 of 2021. We encourage you to take this opportunity to listen to previously uncompleted episodes or view our other free CE-CME programs on a wide variety of topics at dkbmed.com. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. Today's learning objectives are describe strategies to counter vaccine hesitancy and discuss currently available safety data pertaining to the messenger RNA vaccine that recently received emergency use authorization. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He will be interviewing Dr. Chuck Vega from UC Irvine School of Medicine. Dr. Allwater, Dr. Vega, thank you for your times.
2: Yeah, well, thank you, Faith, and I'm delighted that uh, Dr. Charles Vega uh, has joined us to uh, help share many of uh, his thoughts, especially from a primary care perspective, regarding uh, vaccines, uh, and I think in this uh, segment of the program, we are, at least I thought it would be reasonable to talk about people that have vaccine hesitancy. Now, this isn't necessarily anti-vaxxers, people that, you know, really have a deeply held beliefs that I think generally that they want either natural infections or they really don't want to intervene by artificial uh, bases, but first stepping back, California's been a bit at the forefront in many respects regarding immunizations after the measles outbreak in Disneyland. And there's now a state bill that I think for the most part requires children to have full sets of immunizations before entering public school in California. Uh, what's been your experience um, just talking to your colleagues and, and also patients with that particular, I mean, it's not mandatory because you have other options, but it is very, you know, it's very prescriptive.
0: It is, and we need it. Um, so um, all the credit in the world uh, for that law goes to uh, Dr. Richard Pan, who, is a, who was a practicing pediatrician, who was the residency program director in pediatrics at UC Davis. Uh, before uh, joining uh, the state senate here in California, it took a lot of courage. He had death threats. He had to have a security detail. Um, his family was threatened. Yet, I, th- I think through passage of that law, it just reinforces how important vaccines are, particularly for, for young children, um, with these you know potentially terrible illnesses, when we know we have highly effective and uh, safe treatments, such as you know measles. Gosh, it's so disappointing um, to have to think about. Uh, measles again, but it's something we do have to deal with on a you know routine not not a common illness but something we see routinely um, in a big state like California. They're trying to you know actually add more to the law in terms of um, of avoiding um, uh, non more non-medical or even you know some medical reasons that might be questionable in terms of uh, folks who don't want the vaccine and 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 so we need s- support on the policy level there's there's no doubt and I, I'm, a, I'm a big uh, believer in that law and um, and that movement and i mm-hmm. and I do try to be a little bit prescriptive so I will for example with influenza vaccine um, it's it's part of the the plan and it's just I, I'm not really um, asking patients, do you want an influenza vaccine? It's well, today, you know, thanks very much for coming in again. We're gonna check an A1C level. I'm gonna refill your metformin. And we're gonna increase your amlodipine uh, by uh, five milligrams. And then we're gonna give you a flu vaccine before you leave. Does that sound okay? Yeah. And, well, uh, and that more presumptive model um, can work. And it's something that I, I find, we know that it's effective for kids. It can be effective uh, for adults as well. But I'm, 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 of course, willing to have a conversation with somebody with vaccine hesitancy. That's, that's something I do routinely in my practice.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I, and I think those kind of strong recommendations about a vaccine or that it just seems so part of the routine that these are protective, they're safe. It's just the normal course of action. It's nothing fancy. It's nothing abnormal. It's just part of uh, routine medical care is very important. But I, I think we have to make clear that although you have the, the state law in California, at least for the new coronavirus vaccines, all of which will likely be improved first by the Food and Drug Administration only with emergency use authorization, which means they're investigational. People have to sign consents and be informed of the risks and benefits of the vaccine. However, uh, there's no mandatory requirements yet. Uh, You you haven't heard anything about that necessarily. Just uh, to be clear, no one, uh, at least here in Maryland, there's no intent to make uh, coronavirus vaccines mandatory.
0: Yeah, we have, we have a pretty aggressive approach, obviously as a state, but I haven't heard of any of those types right. of um, concerns or, or programs that are being espoused for uh, for the COVID-19 vaccine specifically.
2: Right, there's no doubt going to be a lot of questions about the new coronavirus vaccines. The first two are relatively similar, but there are many more that many more that are coming in different formulations, they work a little differently. So there's going to be a really a big knowledge base that I think even, um, you know, myself as a specialist have trouble keeping up with, but can imagine this is coming fast and furious when you have so many other responsibilities to take care of in your office. But the group that's probably toughest to convince are going to be people that um, uh, don't take uh, vaccines at all for example. And maybe that's not a very big segment of the population. It does vary a little bit. Uh, but it's only usually, um, you know, it's usually under 10% that are have sort of strident views. But um, for those that are just vaccine hesitant, that's probably a larger group. And that's a, a group that just generally has concerns and so on. And uh, What's been your experience perhaps from other vaccines in terms of trying to address uh, uh, their hesitancy about vaccines, especially when there's uncertainty here with a a brand new uh, vaccine and some brand new technologies?
0: So thank you. I I, I certainly have some feelings on on vaccine hesitancy is something I deal with routinely. I, I don't see as much uh, vaccine resistance, of course, those folks kind of, kind of self-select. They're not coming in for a lot of wellness visits, right? Um, but I have, I do have some experience and I, and I found that I have some tools that can help even in that situation and particularly among kids and working with parents who were more strident in their anti-vaccination um, uh, thinking. Uh, and, and so I can, I can address that as well. But so for most folks with vaccine hesitancy, uh, it's, it's, you know, I certainly let them tell their story. I listen with empathy. Um, I want them to you know go on and and use an iterative explanation as to why uh, they don't want the vaccine because a lot of times there isn't a solid core when when patients start to peel back well you know I'm worried about the safety okay tell me what you're worried about the safety of it you know tell me about that worry Uh, well you know I'm just afraid it'll cause some serious side effects such as what and using that iterative process people generally just kind of run out of steam and eventually they say yeah I, I guess maybe I should get the vaccine I couple that when there's when they run a, that run out of steam moment. That's when I say, well, actually, you know, I understand the concerns that you have, and of course, we want to be safe. Your your safety is is our top priority, right? First, mm-hmm. do no harm. And, um, but the the fact is that, you know, these vaccines have been used in, you know, X number of uh, individuals, and we know about their safety profile. And I'll be honest about, you know, data, if there is is probably some, there's some risk of an injection site reaction, of course, I'm going to warn patients about that. But, you know, larger issues such as autism or promotion of cancer, um, there's just no data there to support it. Um, and, I, and I'll state that. Then, I, but I quickly try to pivot from that because I don't want to get in an argument, um, and then go right into okay. But you, and I know it's safe. You know, for one reason is because I received it, and you know my mother received it, and my right. wife and my kids have received it, yeah. and we are on time with our with our vaccines, and and that makes us healthier in the long run. We know that uh, these uh, you know these vaccines apply broadly can really. Um, reduce the burden of disease, and it's going to be important for you and for the people you care about uh, for protecting them as well. Because maybe it's not you feel invincible, but you live with an 88 year old uh, woman with heart failure, history of stroke, um, and Parkinson's disease. You may have a newborn at home. Um, so these, so I think that working with the patient and their particular priorities, trying to get some of those things out there through that story, um, being empathic about it, and then turning the recommendation personal, not citing CDC, not citing uh, the you know the advisory uh, group on um, immunization practices, uh, but but focusing more on that personal uh, approach is is very worthwhile. And then quickly on the anti-vaxxers, um, I do um, I, I, I same same process listening to them. The I'm not I know I'm not going to get a complete win. We're not going to convince you to take everything. But I have found that I can usually get some vaccines on board. It's not the most scientific approach because because really the patient's choosing based on what they've heard and where their information is. But something is better than nothing. And, uh, so I, I'm not, um, yeah, I, I don't need to get a, you know, the complete win here. I, I'm happy with, <laughs> with just getting a first down and staying in the game and, and developing a relationship, uh, through that interchange where I show, you know, respect and empathy where, you know, maybe next year, uh, we may, uh, we may have a different attitude. So it's sometimes, you know, I've got continuity. That's my, that's my secret weapon in primary care. Uh, We may not get there on that first visit or even the second, but maybe the fourth or the fifth visit. Uh, Keep trying and keep that equanimity. Um, And I think that that's that's an important role because I have seen attitudes change over time as trust builds.
2: Sure. Uh, Patients eventually stop smoking. Uh, uh, You know, you just have to keep trying. I think you have some excellent uh, thoughts there to try to help uh, and occasionally break through. Uh, I think you're right, uh, personalizing things is so helpful. Uh, I have found you know, people are not very interested in Tdaps, but if you start saying, oh, you have a new infant grandchild, suddenly, right. you know, that's a no brainer. You don't want them to get uh, uh, pertussis. pertussis as an yeah. infant, and, and they sign right up, uh, <laughs> even if their arm swelled up a bit from the last one 10 years ago or so. Uh, you know, these uh, vaccines, of course, won't be given to children initially, um, really adolescents. We'll uh, see where the FDA draws a line. Uh, not too many, even adolescents got uh, immunized. So uh, it probably is going to be mostly an adult vaccine for starters. So, you know, thinking about your adults in your primary care practice, um, what do you feel are going to be the questions that um, you're going to have to prepare your staff for too? Because I think, you know, uh, it's not only you, but uh, the people in the office. That if they don't have some of these answers, I have a feeling. Especially, we don't know if we're going to be administering them in all of our offices. But if we are, you know, they're going to they're going to ask for some insights as well, often from office staff.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's a great great point, and you you really want to be speaking as one. So. You know, whatever handouts or uh, educational materials should reflect what you're actually telling patients. I find personally that that the mode of communication, uh, you know, directly face to face, even on your if even if it's via you know an interface like on the computer with telehealth, uh, is better than uh, than written materials. Um, but everybody should be on board and having the same approach. And and really, it comes down to two questions: efficacy and safety. I think the efficacy is there. Um, safety, I think it's, it's worth stating what we don't know. Like, we don't know the long-term safety. It's impossible to know long-term safety uh, with, uh, with these vaccines. But there's gonna be so many millions of people vaccinated around the world, but, and there's gonna be so much scrutiny of those individuals and how they're doing both in terms of, do we see the, the curve of the pandemic uh, bent backwards? but are we doing so safely as well? And are there post-marketing reports for? smaller safety signals but important ones um so that is something that's going to be tracked and nobody in the um you know who we're seeing as patients is unless they're a healthcare professional of some type somebody who's on the front lines is going to be in that first band so we'll take we'll take the first uh we'll be the first ones to you know to go through it Uh, we have that personal experience so we can talk to that um that will be critically important and then you know be honest about the things we don't know but uh but i i i am very certain that uh that we will be able to find those uh those potential safety signals if it's a problem i think there's also a concern not so much among my patients but i've had a couple uh people uh you know focus on the, uh, this type of vaccine being rna vaccines the first you know first rna vaccines that are uh they're they're bound to be uh used on a broad basis you know about the safety of that technology in particular and is this going to hijack my you know rna and um, and and my my own uh, genetic processes of my body and, and do all kinds of weird things. I think that's a vague concern I've heard from multiple people as well, who probably uh, you know kind of have that have enough insight to uh, realize that this tech is is different and special. I don't know yeah. if you have a special way of addressing that. Yeah,
2: I, I do a little bit. What I try to say is, at least for the mRNA, uh, it's no different than a virus, except. Uh, the virus is inserting six or ten genes, for example, and this is only one, so it, you know, there's nothing very new or novel, and and also the RNA go, it degrades pretty quickly. Right. It doesn't really persist. It's not integrated into chromosomal structures. I think what we don't know a lot about are just the lipid formulation echo structures uh, that surround it. Um, and, uh, you know, what I tell patients, uh, Chuck, are that, for most major vaccine trials, major safety signals, you know, stroke, heart attack, things that, you know, um, uh, put people in the hospital, you find out in the first four to eight weeks, you know, in the vaccine. So we already don't see that. We don't see death, early deaths or anything. Of course, as you said, we have to tell them the knowns and we know the local reactions and they may be sick transiently. Um, so we have to be upfront on that. Uh, the unknowns are just tougher. I mean, we don't have the long-term safety data. Uh, that's why the vaccine's not fully approved. It's gonna be waiting until later in 2021 when we have all the safety data. And and you know, there's always uh, looking for a vaccine or immune Uh, autoimmune diseases and so on. But so far, you know, these trials are going on in real time and uh, looking for uh, uh, those kind of problems. And I'd say, blessedly, they really have not uh, come about so far. So, you know, overall, I just say it's reassuring, but there are unknowns and a lot of people don't like
0: uncertainty. No, of course not, and of course we wish we had perfect data too, but um, especially this past year, if nothing else has taught us, we, we have to move forward because it's it's a crisis, and, and so we can't necessarily... Uh, you know, wait for the perfect. The good will have to suffice for now, and and that's why ongoing uh, study is so important. And I can also point to the fact that you know, when there was a safety signal, look at the AstraZeneca uh, Oxford uh, vaccine trial was halted uh, for a substantial amount of time uh, because of a potential safety signal, which was judged to be you know not related to the vaccine. But I think that just shows that uh, the scientists behind this are are, are taking se- uh, safety um, as seriously as you do um, as a patient, they're probably thinking about the, their own families and, uh, you know, themselves. And so, of course, they want to create a safe product. And I think that was a, a good example of, you know, not, I think people will look at it as, as a negative, like, gosh, they're, they're hiding something because, the, you know, the study was stopped for several weeks. Well, actually, I, th- I think that putting the brakes on was just a sign that just shows how careful they were. And eventually, they, they found there were no major safety signals associated with that vaccine.
2: Well, this certainly is not the end of the story. We're going to have uh, lots more information, more vaccine candidates, uh, and other impacts on the dynamics of this uh, pandemic. But certainly, these are the first rays of hope, I think, uh, as we enter the winter time. So uh, Chuck, I really want to thank you for sharing your uh, expertise, your insights, also uh, how to handle vaccine questions, which are going to be coming fast and furious at us all over the next few weeks. So uh, thanks so much for uh, staying with the program.
1: If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.